Uh, there was this mathematician who was renowned for um, his his just ways of sorting puzzles and challenges and he was he was so well known that he went on a tour. I was going to tour the continent giving lectures on his mathematical prowess and and one particular problem that he's adept at, at solving. And so night after night, he would show up at a university lecture hall or a um, gathering place in town, and he would wax eloquent on mathematics. Um, pe people loved to listen to him because it, it, was, it was just like a flowery speech of math that was coming out every night. So he, he was traveling with... Um, a driver who who was picking him up every day at his hotel when it, wherever that was and bringing him to the lecture hall and then seeing him safely back to the hotel so this uh this driver had been with him now for months and months and basically has sat in the back of the lecture hall and listened to the lecture and as he listened it dawned on him that he was really hearing the same lecture every time it was a new crowd but it was the same professor same lecture. So one time, the, the, the driver, as he was driving his, his, uh, his professor back to the hotel, he said, you know what? He said, I, I've heard your lecture so many times, I could give it in my sleep. And the professor said, you're on. Tomorrow night, you're going to take my place. You will deliver the lecture. And the driver said, no, you're, you're kidding. I couldn't do it. You just told me you could do it in your sleep. Let's see if you can do it while you're awake. So tomorrow night, you're going to be the guy. So the next night, um, the driver and the professor show up, and no one knows the difference. But when it's time for the lecture, the driver steps up to the podium and delivers the lecture flawlessly. And it was so good. The place was in uproar. They were clapping. They were standing. It was brilliant, brilliant. So as the uh, host stepped up to the microphone, he said, I noticed um, we have a little time left. We could take questions. <laughs> so the uh, microphone was open, and the professor just sat down at the back in the driver's seat and left the driver on the stage. And somebody stepped up and asked a really difficult question. I mean, it was, it was, you know, on par with the lecturer. And as the poor driver stood there wondering how he's going to get out of this, suddenly came to him. So he, uh, he said, sir, stay, stay right there at the microphone if you would. Sir, I'm surprised. I, I'm surprised that a person like you, who's obviously an intelligent man, would ask such a question that even my driver back there could answer. <laughs> and the driver did. I want to talk about God's wisdom. And I want to I ease us away from what's probably our propensity as Westerners, um, when it comes to sort of sizing the difference between us and God. Um, so if you, if you can imagine two images and, and we're trying to sort the ratio between them, the relationship between them, how, how big is God and how, how big is you? Or how, how big is God and how small is you? Um, and, and in practical, everyday ways, do we conceive of God as great as he should be conceived of? 
Or do we tend to, to shrink God down to get to be more like us? And I think our propensity as Westerners is to do that very thing, is that we will size God for our world, for our um, worldview, for our practical needs, um, and it, it will be a demeaning of God uh, almost at, at every instance. So the, the grounds on which I would like to talk about that this morning is God's wisdom. And as we follow uh, Jim Packer's book, Knowing God, we come to God All-Wise. And again, as a, we think of sort of the religious language around all of this, it's not something we say often that we worship a God All-Wise, but we know what we mean. Uh, we understand that God is eternal, that God is infinite, and that God is all-wise. He, he is never wrong. He's never lacking. He, he's never deficient. But when it comes to dealing with God, we sometimes, I think, feel like we have the right of the driver to say, I could do your lecture in my sleep. Sometimes we, we might find ourselves saying to God, I could do your job in my sleep. And in fact, sometimes we try to do it, not in our sleep, but we try to do it in our waking. We try to do God's job. We would like for him to listen to how we want him to do his job. We would want him to obey what we tell him about how he should do his job. Um, and all the while we would say, but yes, we will always confess that it is God all wise. So it's a matter of the relative size of the me and the God in, in my world. And I want to take you this morning to the scriptures and hopefully ease us by three understandings just away from our propensity to make God too small and us too big when it comes to wisdom. So when we go to the scriptures, Hebrews 11 um, is a massive passage. So Hebrews 11 is the, um, the portrait of faith. It's the portrait of all kinds of heroes of the Old Testament. And in back of our minds, and this is what I want to try to ease us away from, in back of our minds, I think we believe that God owes us an explanation. So we believe that it's quite all right to be demanding an answer to the question, why? Because God owes an answer to the question, why? And so we negotiate with one another and with God about when the why question will be answered. Maybe it's in the middle of someone's sickness or in the middle of, of someone's troubles, and we will say, you know, it may not be clear now, but I'm sure sooner or later you're going to understand what was going on, why God did this, why God allowed this to happen. And, and we, we give comfort, intentionally good comfort, to one another by saying, God will answer the whys. Every now and then, someone will dare to stretch out and say, we may not understand now, but we will then. So maybe for some of us, we're holding on through life to the hereafter and saying, at least then, God's going to give his answer to the why. In the relative size of things, 
we size God down and say, you're responsible for at least this much to tell us why. We want an explanation. And so in Hebrews, there is this crazy set of stories of people who never ever saw what they waited for for their whole life. So maybe we in Hebrews 11 get, oh yeah, but, but in the afterlife, they, they did see it. They got, they got the why question answered. But as we begin to just try to ease ourselves away from telling God how to do his job, um, realize that we are left with this whole panoply of witnesses who have lived their lives without seeing any fruit for their belief. Right? So who were they? They, they were the Abrahams. They were the Sarahs. They, they were on down the line of all of these people. And when the writer to Hebrews summarizes it all, he says this, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. All of these good people died and got nothing. So Abraham is one that uh, the writer to Hebrews belabors. And he says, here's this guy. And he's told by God to leave everyone, to leave his family, his father, his grandfather, everybody, and go on a journey. And by the way, God doesn't tell him where to go. He just says, get moving. And, And that immediately begins to size us down when we say, well, I'm not going anywhere until I'm told where to go. No, just, just start going. And then along the way, things did not go well. So even though he had a notion that God was telling him to move, and he did what God was telling him to do, nothing went well. Conflict, trouble, family relationships, nothing went well. And at the end of the day, um, strange things had happened. Um, children did not come naturally. Children came by promise. The child that came by promise, God said, could you please bring your son up the mountain and offer him as a burnt offering to me? And they go, what is this? God, you need to explain yourself. Really? Did, did Abraham understand? N- not at all. He, 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 he you know, by a, by a hair's breadth, he missed sacrificing his son in obedience for this God that told him he was going to take him from his father's house and make a great blessing of him and make all the nations of the world great because of him. Well, if that's what you're going to do, how about you know, a little better treatment along the way? And when it's all over, the writer to Hebrews says, they all died in faith. They didn't get the answers. They didn't get what they were hoping for. It didn't come in this life. So one of the things that we have to reckon with this morning is that life is not fair. And that's okay. Put it on your bumper and believe it because we all have examples of the fact that life is not fair. But in back of that, there is something in our minds and hearts that says life should be fair. And yet it's not. Life is not fair. And there are some times and some ways that we can figure out why life is not fair. Sometimes there are reasons that things take place and, and we can sort them out. And when we sort 
some of those things out, it it becomes a little more palatable. We, we begin to say, life's not fair generally, but I think here's some of the things that are going on that explain what's around us, in, in some ways that explain God for us, because sometimes we sort of feel like we need to speak for him and explain him. I, I talked to a lady many years ago in a cancer hospital where I was doing chaplaincy, and she, she said... Um, I think I know now why I have cancer. And that's a a big conversation. It's a conversation that happens many times. Why do I have cancer? And I knew this was going to be an interesting but probably difficult conversation. So I said, "Why, why do you have cancer? And she said, I have been wrecking my brain to find out what it is I've done. And I think this is it. And she took me back to a story from high school where she had done something to a friend um, that she thought was really treacherous, that she had not treated her friend well at all. And she said, now I know why I have cancer. And I was baffled because for her, it was giving her peace. Um, It was better for her in, in the trouble of her mind to believe that God was punishing her because of a nasty thing she did than to believe that there was nobody in control. It was easier for her to accept that there was a reason for it than to accept that things are random. It's very human. Because if we confess a belief in God, then we, we want to know, well, so what does he do? And how, how does he act towards us? And what can we expect of him? So even as we tell our stories, I think many times as we are pitching our Christian faith, we overpromise what God is committed to do. We tell people things that aren't necessarily true about what God intends for them. We tell good stories. And it's funny, we only remember the good stories. We only remember the stories of answers to prayer. We forget the stories where prayers weren't answered or aren't answered. And we go off and we tell people that um, we have this God you should follow. Uh, he's great. He, 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 just, he makes your life wonderful. I, I don't know very many people who, when they began to follow Jesus, got a wonderful life in exchange. I know a lot of people who scratch their heads and say, I am filled with questions and dilemmas every day of my life. These people all died and got nothing, except in the afterlife. There's an even more interesting story in the Bible that's given to us very early, and it's the story of Job. And if you want to know how life does or doesn't make sense, Go and study Job. The book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. It's the most ancient story um, told out in its its details in the Bible. So here's Job, and he's a good guy. He's the sort of person you want to spend time with. He's he's righteous. He's upright. Um, He prays. There there are lovely things said about him. For example, when his when his family, his boys and girls, sons and daughters are having parties, he prays 
that they won't, you know, profane God, that they won't do anything that's going to um, bring shame to God. He prays for them. And we, we have this backstory that is totally confusing where Satan shows up in heaven and God says to Satan, where have you been? I've been wandering around seeing what's going on. Have you noticed Job? Yeah. He's very righteous, isn't he? Says, of course he is, because you won't let me touch him. And God says, okay, touch him. But spare his life. And Job's life, so he, he, he doesn't see this backstory. No idea what's going on. He thinks that the rules are if you live a life that is good and responsive to God, you will be blessed. That, that's what, what makes sense. Still makes sense to us. If you live well, if you live properly, you should, you should live well. You should, should be blessed. So the, the story unfolds that nothing goes right for Job. And it, you know, insult to injury to the point that even his wife one day says, you're crazy. Curse God and die, will you? And he says, don't, don't be talking like, like foolish people. Why would I take the good from God's hand and not the evil from God's hand? Don't be saying these things. His friends show up and they say, Job, <clears throat> we're here for an intervention. Just listen. Here's what goes on. Um, if you live well, you get blessed. You stay healthy, prosperous, all that. If you sin, you get caught, you get punished. Good news, you repent, you say I'm sorry, and it all goes back. The cycle starts over and you're good. So do what's right, be good, you'll be blessed, everybody will be fine. If you mess up, make sure you say you're sorry. God will say, okay, I hear that, so I'll take away the punishment. So that's it, Job. What, it, what have you done? Job says nothing. They go, oh, man. <sighs> He's codependent or belligerent or he's psychiatrically ill or something. But do we, do we need to repeat ourselves? Here's the way it goes. Do well and be blessed. Sin and get punished. Repent. And Job, he, it, this goes cycle after cycle. And he says, I have not sinned. Well, by now, Job is getting pretty ticked. And he wants the answer to the question, why? And all of us would say he had every right to get that answer, right? He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything to deserve what came upon him. In fact, it looks as though God sicked Satan on him. Why did God alert Satan to Job? Why didn't he leave him be? We don't know. So Job, in the midst of all of this, and he's, I mean, he, he is a, a festering sore from his, his um, affliction, and he, he calls out to the heavens and he says, if I could get my day in court, if the Almighty would give me a chance to prove myself before him, to defend myself before him. I want my day in court. And then the drama goes on, and the, the climax of it all is that God says to Job, okay, what do you want to say? Now, by this time, um, 
everything has just rushed forward. He's, nothing is good. And as, as he begins, it's almost as though he begins to say a word, and God says, J- just a minute, I have some questions for you. Where were you when, and in a, in a litany of questions, God said to Job, just make sure, before we go any farther, that you're not going to be getting too big for your boots. Where were you when I did thus and so? Can you make this animal do this? Can, can you, in creation, move this along? So tell me. He says, you're the one who's demanding a chance to defend yourself. So tell me, can you do all of these things? And the integrity of Job shows up by Job crashing, and he says, I'm an idiot. What was I thinking? That I could demand that the creator answer to creation. Now, God does one nice little thing for him. He goes after Job's friends and says, you are all idiots. You are not his friends at all. You were wrong. Your formula was wrong. You should leave that behind next time you go to meet your friend for coffee and have an intervention. And I would like to say that at the end of the day, God sat down with Job and explained it all. And do you know what the, the true case is? He didn't, he didn't explain himself. Didn't say why it happened. He left it be. He blessed Job, but he didn't answer the why question. We don't know why God allowed Satan to do what he did. God does, but we don't. And the question that I think we need to get near today um, is, are we okay to say that we might not know God's ways? So uh, this is the first sort of easing towards a better perspective. Can we say to one another, it's, it's actually possible that we might not know God's ways? Because in, in our heads, we are, we're, we're pretty, you know, driverish. We're pretty prone to say, I could give that lecture in my sleep. We're pretty prone to be pretty big in our own understanding. And it's a mark of humility and, and proper humility to say, honestly, we might not know God's ways. See, a lot, a lot of times, because I'm a pastor, people will put on me the responsibility to, to answer questions that I don't have answers for. And it's not honest of me to say, well, here, here's what I know about that, and so don't worry about it because here's the way God works. He always does. All I can say is that here's what I've seen God do in people's lives, and here's what I've seen not happen in some other people's lives. And honestly, we just might not know God's ways. Well, I'm going to get a little bit farther. Secondly, we need not know God's ways. Those people all died and got nothing. Are, are we okay with a Christianity that not only says we might not know God's ways, but actually is 
a faith that says we, we need not know God's ways. That's a very mature place where someone in the middle of suffering, um, often in illness or whatever it is, when a person can say, I, I don't need to know what, is, what God is doing. The, I know there's a backstory. I don't, know, I don't need to know what it is because I, I can trust him. See, the, the things that we take to the bank are the things that God does explain to us, which are his attributes, the things that we've been looking at week by week. God is love. I might not know his ways and why it feels like I'm not being loved by God. I have to be able to say I need not know his ways because I do believe that he is love. I do believe that I can trust him. I know that he is faithful. He is faithful to his character. He is faithful to his word, to his promises. I can't figure out how that all matches up many times. But I'm not going to make God small so he's acceptable. I have to let God be as big as he is so that I am living with the right perspective. And I might not know his ways. I need not know his ways. And honestly, I should not know his ways. I'm not trustworthy. Um, If God explained to Abraham what he was doing and said, okay, Abraham, so join up. Let's, Let's have you figure out the agenda from here on. Do your best. Abraham should have caught himself on and said, no, 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 no. I should not know your ways. Because every time we figure we do know God's ways, we mess up. I mean, how many times? Did somebody have a better idea than God? Saul, can you go and do what the prophet has told you, which is to go to the Amalekites because God has declared that he's going to wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth because of the atrocity of their coming behind the Israelites and killing off all of the old ladies and the little children. So go and kill the king and all of his animals, everything he has, ox and donkey, everything, I want it all demolished. You go figure out some other time how ethical this is, but off goes Saul. So Samuel is wondering, he, he says, has anybody seen Saul? And they say, yeah, he's down at, um, at Gilgal. Well, what's he doing there? Um, he's, he's erecting a monument to himself. Okay, that's a red flag. So Samuel finally finds Saul and, and Samuel says, did you do what I told you to do? And Saul says, yeah, every, I did it. And Samuel says, hmm, that's funny. I just think I heard a sheep bleat. I couldn't have. Could I, could I have hurt Samuel? Saul could, because if you did what I told you to do, what God told you to do, I would not be hearing any sheep around here. Saul says, I had a better idea. And because of his better idea, he lost the kingdom. So don't trust yourself with a better idea than God's. And so if we need to say to him, I should not know your ways, let's say that to him. 
Will he explain himself? I don't know. Faith, I think, is being able to trust him with the backstory. End of story. Not knowing why, sometimes being told why graciously and helpfully, and all of that, but but being able to say, okay, we are way too prone to become the driver standing on the stage. The professor knows. So let him deal with the questions. God knows, and that means that for me, I might not know his ways. I need not know his ways. And truth be told, I shouldn't know his ways. When he tells me something, it's gravy. When he explains something, it's lovely. When we see that part of the backstory is that he has used difficult circumstances to bring glory to himself and to help us to grow. And that, that is just all really good stuff. But it's better to start knowing what we may not know and not be fussy about that. Because God is huge in wisdom. What he was doing through the old covenant story and into the new covenant was huge. And it should not have been entrusted into humans to bring about. And it wasn't. Because God is God and I am not. Thank you. It's hard medicine. But it's good medicine because God, it just, it allows God to loom larger and larger and larger to be all that he is. And it's better for me to be able to say, I'm tired. I'm tired of trying to understand. I I just want to trust because that's better. Why don't we pray? Father, help us to grasp um, better than we do how we can have wrong notions of you and what you should be telling us or not telling us or doing for us or not. Um, we, we thank you that you are love and you love us and that the, the back story is one that ends with us being the creatures living in love by and with their creator God in a world that is a perfect place for all, in which God is properly worshipped and, which, and in which we properly enjoy. So for all of the troubles that we have, some of our own making and some that come upon us, um, we pray that without answers now or later, we will have an experience of your presence and your deep, deep love for us in Jesus. Pray in his name. Amen.